think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 16 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 17th episode. Uh, this week we have a guest with us uh, in, in our uh, podcasting lair slash studio. <laughs> Uh, Evan Balbor joins us from Toronto. He's in town uh, this weekend for a journalism conference of some kind. We don't we don't care. Uh, but the, the important <laughs> thing is that he uh, <laughs> brought me here. <laughs> the important thing is that he's here on the Boys in Short Pants. And uh, today, because uh, Evan knows a lot about ATIP, the Access Information Act, and uh, how journalists use it, and how and we, we know a bit more on the political side, we want to have a conversation about uh, about ATIP and uh, kind of how both sides of the eternal tug of war between wanting to get information and not wanting to release it, uh, how that sort of plays out and any new developments that have occurred recently. So Evan, uh, thanks for coming by. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, do you want to just tell us about your background? Uh, sure. So um, I am no longer political, but uh, I was Mayor Tory, Mayor of Toronto. We beat Rob Ford, but I was his uh, deputy war room director and then worked in Mayor Tory's office where I had the, uh, let's say, pleasure of dealing with a lot of constituents. Um, and then I went back to school. So now I am a freelance journalist and uh, a regular uh, contributor to Candleland, where they claim me as one of their reporters. Excellent. Very good. You picked uh, you picked a healthy industry to partake in. <laughs> yeah, journalism is great. Yeah, yeah it's super no, good. Nobody's uh, kind of seen the direction I've done, which is you know going from a good job to like trying to I know trying to make it in journalism. Yeah, it's bizarre. Usually, the journalists jump into the minister's offices yeah. and as- aspire to these sorts of things That's lately. That's true. Yeah. Even anyway. Um, so. For a little bit of background about the Access Information Act, uh, do one of you guys want to want to give us like a quick summary of like the history and sure? So what uh, the idea is. I mean, so it was uh, it was back in I think 1983. Yeah, uh, they put in some legislation uh, that governed how members of the public could access uh, government information that wasn't being proactively disclosed. Um, and while this, like now, we look back and we see it as an accountability and transparency measure, uh, it was the Information and Commissioner, sorry, Information Commissioner of Canada. Uh, who was given a talk at the conference that it was actually pointed out that one of the first reasons that they put this act in in 1983 was actually to stop the selective leaking of documents by public servants. So it, it wasn't really accountability and transparency just to the public, but it was uh, actually the government trying to make sure that uh, public servants weren't uh, leaking information. Fair enough. Yeah. How would that stop them from leaking information? So um, the way it works, and I actually got an interesting example to, to cap this off with, but the way it works is if information uh, could not be disclosed uh, through the Access to Information Act. Is that what it's called federally as well? Access yes. to Information Act? Yeah. yeah. So if information could not be disclosed through it, it actually is like quasi-illegal to disclose it. Right. Okay. This actually come came up and uh, nobody really made any uh, made a big deal out of it, but the, the Parliament Hill shooting, that video should never have been released because uh, it would not have met the criteria. Uh, I, I understand that's the information uh, Commissioner told me. Which, which video? The, the video of the shooter. The, in his car? Uh, running around, the, like, the whole thing. Like, she, she didn't mention a specific part, but uh, she said that, that those videos should not have been released. Hmm. Dang. Yeah. Interesting. I would... I'd be curious to... Like, I obviously wasn't there, so I can't comment yeah. on what, what specifically she said. Um, but, like, generally, it's up to the discretion of the head of the agency yep. what is releasable and what's not. Um, one of one of the common jokes that you see on Twitter sometimes is like, um, it, they're only leaks unless um, they're disclosed by politicians, and that's mm-hmm. actually a hundred percent right because politicians are able to determine, ministers are able to determine yeah. what is disclosable to the public and what's not. They have sort of the authority to actually do that. Yeah, yeah. to say like, okay, yeah. we're going to put this document in the public domain. Yeah. 
Public Whereas servants, leave sort of implies that there's a... Public servants dimension. don't have the authority to pick and choose the documents. The documents that they are allowed to put in the public domain are presumptively the ones yeah. outlined through the Access Information Act. And right. that actually becomes a problem with, with open government, which, I mean, remind me and we'll touch on that later. Excellent, yeah. Um, uh, so that, that's sort of like the, the purpose and history of the act. It, it's been amended a couple of times since. Uh, no, no. Uh, it, it, there's a series of uh, failed amendments. Failed it was, amendments. It, and it was only amended uh, once, I believe, in 1999 in order to make it apply to more uh, bodies. Okay. Didn't uh, Harper make some changes to it again? I think there were some small changes, perhaps yeah. not to the act, maybe to the regime. Okay. The, that would make uh, sense. In the, what's the piece of legislation? The Federal Accountability Act, okay. I think, touched on some parts of yeah, the access yeah. information, but they were considered like not as far as a lot of people wanted. Okay. And so that takes us to sort of where we are with the State of the Information Act today, Yeah. which is that the Liberal government uh, during the campaign promised... Well, I, I, I got to study there because there were some other changes that were made. Yeah. Uh, over the years since it was put in, uh, there are a number of... The number of exemptions you could do to avoid disclosure right. have grown. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it, it has actually less... Uh, it, less ability to to get the information out than there was in, in 1983. Yeah. So briefly, do you want to explain like the current scope of the act and sort of what like duty to document that kind of stuff like <laughs> duty to document is an interesting thing. Yeah. So, uh, I, I guess I'll start there. Duty to document is actually something the information commissioner would like to see, and that means that you have to create responsive records. So a big issue right now when you when you work in government, uh, and I, I've heard like you know pl plenty of people tell me this at all levels of government. They are actively instructed to avoid creating records uh, whenever there's anything that could be sensitive. So that includes like, um, you know, don't send things by email, do it by phone call, mm -hmm. uh, do it in person meetings and just avoid to create the record. The duty to document would mean that that would not fly anymore. Like right. you couldn't do things over like Blackberry pin messenger. Yeah. Um, and as far as like what you can actually get through uh, a tip or uh, freedom of information requests, which is the provincial and municipal counterpart to a tip. Um, Generally speaking, you can you can get any kind of record that the government creates or any record of communication or anything uh, as long as there is no private information in it about yeah. citizens or any proprietary information for businesses and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but one big problem and probably something that we're going to argue about here is uh, whether or not um, there's something. Uh, so cabinet exclusion. So a lot of information that goes to like ministers yeah. uh, is excluded, uh, including advice and recommendations on what policy directions they should they should go in. Absolutely. So that's excluded. So a lot of the uh, the how the sausage is made is exempted from the act. So you don't see the thought process that goes into like um, the policies that eventually come out. Exactly. And we'll we'll touch on that uh, a little bit later. Um, because that's really, I think, the, what's at the core of the argument yeah. around ATIP yeah. today. We should probably say that also that's something that the Liberals had campaigned in 2015 to implement, that they would they would end this sort of like cabinet exclusion and uh, bring in, basically make everything in cabinet offices and uh, like the PMO atypable. And I, I don't see why not. I mean, in Ontario, you can file FOIs for it. Oh, really? So yeah. what they have, so they're, they have like four or five points uh, related to the... ATIP Act in their platform. Uh, the first one is updating the Act to make uh, government information open by default. Uh, then there's eliminating the fees except for the $5 filing fee. Mm -hmm. um, expand the role of the Information Commissioner to give them power to issue binding orders for disclosure. Um, there's also applying the Access to Information Act to the Prime Minister's Office and to Minister's Offices, as we just touched on, as well as other institutions such as Parliament. That's another one that's often discussed. 
And lastly, to ensure the system continues to serve Canadians, we will ensure a full legislative review of the Act, uh, the Access to Information Act, every five years. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, sort of, the state of it politically right now is like just radio silence. No yeah. one has heard anything of any of these rep uh, recommendations really coming through. I will say, with the exception it's of the five dollar filing yeah. fee. Which I believe they moved on pretty quickly to just cut down some of the extraneous costs. Because you could, you would see journalists on Twitter like posting like pictures of something they got back from the government. That was like that'll be like seventy thousand yeah. dollars to process this ATIP request, and I was like, hmm, that's possibly a little unreasonable. Uh, on the other hand, actually bringing it down to five makes a lot of work for for the people who handle ATIP requests uh, because you know basically anybody can file one now. And yep. but they're they're they're. they're there are guidelines about vexatious requests that, yep. like, they can refuse to, to deal with them, but it's sort of that process is being kind of hashed out. And who knows how they determine speak. what's a vexatious request, exactly, right? Exactly. It could just be, like, a really annoying journalist be a vexatious request. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the balance here is that access to information requests, like, on, on the inside of government require a lot of people yeah. and a lot of effort and a lot of time. Disclosure, yeah. But being open and transparent is actually, like, a lot of work. Well, let's talk about that yeah. for a second. So why, why is actually uh, disclosing... The information from those requests so difficult from the inside like why do you, why do you guys think that is um it just takes a lot of work i mean they have to go through like collect all the relevant documents go through make sure they need no to like privacy breaches or anything they need to sure uh, apply like, all the exclusions so you yep. practically have to be a lawyer to apply like the all the exclusions so the information commissioner was actually mentioning that you could get the cost down if you remove some of these exclusions yeah. and you wouldn't have to have 10 sets of eyes on things to make sure you're following all the rules probably true I, I mean, that's that's entirely fair. Obviously, the more rules you have, the harder it is to uh, go through the documents yeah, and, and apply, apply all of those rules. Um, so that's sort of, like, fundamental. But, like, some of the rules have very good justifications. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not uh, sort of dramatically in favor of one side or the other. I'm somewhere in between that all of all of the access information stuff is about striking the right balance. Yeah. Um, because putting literally everything out there it begins to compromise government at a certain point, um, especially in terms of the, like... Fair and frank um, yeah, dealing with the public. What is it? Free and frank. Free and frank dealing with the public service. Then being able to give your uh, sort of honest opinion yeah. to your political leaders. Well, I think yeah. that, that segues us nicely to the discussion around cabinet, which I think you yeah. seem you seem to think good thing. I think Etan and I are a well, little I, more hesitant. I, I, I have issue. a bit of a nuance to you on it. So my issue with the, with the cabinet exclusion. So maybe you guys want to talk about why why it exists in theory. Yeah, sure. So basically, like as as Etan mentioned, the, there's an obligation on the part of the civil service to give free and frank advice to the political branch, the the ministers. And for me personally, I think it like I don't want civil servants having to worry about the optics of the advice they're giving. I want them to just like do their jobs and not have to worry about the political side and leave. <laughs> The politics of the politicians. So let me cut in here with an example from one of my favorite media outlets, The Rebel. Ah. One of uh, my least favorite. <laughs> no, I, I say that Wait, entirely. Wait, you call that a media outlet? In, yeah. <laughs> hey, they have press passes. Entirely, uh, entirely sarcastic. So do we, I guess. Um, but they actually, the, the reason I bring this up is because the story is actually legitimately interesting, as they are, uh, are successful time, from time to time in that regard, um, is that they have, uh, they attempt to documents from uh, Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada, and one of the documents that came out is emails between senior public servants talking about how basically to circumvent the Access to Information Act. Yeah, which is not a good look. No, it's just, it's stupid. Like, everybody that I know that uh, that gets a, a role in government is instructed verbally pretty much on their first day how to avoid creating responsive records. Yeah, the fact that they're doing it over email, they should the know dumbest, is creating exactly. a responsive <laughs> record. It's the dumbest possible <laughs> way of having that conversation. Yes. 
this might be sensitive. Please give me a call. I would not like this to be atypical. It's yes. like it's sort of the paraphrase. It's a smoking gun. Yeah, it's a smoking gun. I mean, just say like, hey, like, let's chat about this. There you go. Yeah, let's go yeah. have lunch. Let's let's chat. Yeah, how, like yeah, that's a really common request. Uh, sorry, a response to like an A tip or an FOI request is like, give me a call. You'll yeah. get an email on a subject. It'll say, give me a call. And of course, you have no way of getting at the record of what that call is. Yeah, the the subtext of it is like. It, it's both, this is easier through conversation, but yes. also, like, let's not document yeah. what we're about to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so cabinet exclusion, how do you... So cabinet exclusion, I, I actually, I do appreciate the role the public service has to play and, uh, and that some of their advice... Yes, I could see exclusions applying to it. Where where I differ, though, is that uh, in a lot of interpretations of the Access to Information Acts provincially and federally... Um, you'll see that they also have exclusions for just factual information given as part of that advice. So analysis is considered yeah. excluded. That's my problem. So I, if, if government is making decisions, uh, I want to know what facts they're making those decisions on. I don't necessarily need to know uh, the this kind of subjective advice the public uh, service is giving them, but I think yeah. those facts are... A responsive record, but I think, in my opinion. I think you can do that earlier in the process. Like, that doesn't require cabinet. That just requires, like, the records from the departments being more open or, like, finance putting out, like... But more. in actuality, when you try to, like, FOI that stuff or file an ATIP for it, you still get that exclusion being yeah. applied. Yeah, that seems like... But, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That, that seems like that could be tinkered around. But, yeah, I definitely don't want a situation where public servants are thinking, I think, I think X, but I'm going to write down Y... Because X is a bad look and, like, I'll get a bad headline. Let me give you another situation. So um, uh, it's my understanding. So I, I, you guys know a lot more about the federal system than I do. I know mostly provincial and municipal. So in the federal uh, service, a minister can give instruction to the ministry to give him information or her information. Yeah, you can request a briefing or a, a note on whatever you want, basically. Okay. So, um, so I would abuse the shit it's, out it's, of that. It's, it's, it's different in the city of Toronto. So in the city of Toronto, like, whenever... Uh, like uh, a counselor or something wants information, they basically have to go to like an open council meeting and, and request a report back. Not always. That's a very formal process of it. Yeah. They can, of course, informally request information. But the direction that they're giving staff is documented. It's a public record. The direction that ministers are giving staff federally then is not really a matter of public record. If a minister is saying to somebody in the public service, like, I need your recommendations for policy for this, but when you give me those recommendations, make sure that those recommendations include X and Y. Right. I want to know if they're telling the public service, if they're giving them direction, that then feeds back into the recommendations the public service is giving them back. So I'm, I'm going to nuance this a little bit, because when we talk about ministers' offices, communications not being atypical, their interactions with the public service are atypical, unless they're applied to exclusions. Yeah, and this is why you don't CC a public servant on a... On an email chain, if you're in a <laughs> yes, process, exactly. then that entire email chain is atypical. There, so. There's sort of this like firewall built between the <clears throat> minister's office and the public service, and the idea is anything that once goes over that firewall cannot cannot come back. Yeah, unless so you, any, you, unless any you email, try to stop it in the mailroom. <laughs> any email that you send to um, public servants then becomes atypical, and so you have to be very sort of cognizant of that in your communications and who you're CCing on emails, because yeah. If you're having a political discussion uh, on as minister's office staff and you loop in a public servant, your entire chain has now become subject to the, uh, the Access to Information Act. Which is bad. Because, I mean, staffers are... Which is bad from a staffer's perspective, yeah. but of course yes. that's not what uh, a lot of media are, argues for, nor seemingly what the liberals have promised. No. Um, the reason, so, to sort of explain this, because I've had to explain this to a couple of people who just, like 
feel like all government communication should be obvious, and I think yeah. we need to dig down a little bit further into this, is both the idea that you need a certain level of, I'm going to use the term secrecy, not the best word, but a, a certain level of secrecy in which to operate as political staff, Otherwise, you're doing your job, it becomes compromised. Yeah. The Access to Information Act, I think, uh, perhaps was best described by Tony Blair. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a really interesting anecdote to bring up yeah. because he, he basically describes it as he did some reforms of the Access to Information Act and he described it as a, he provided the opposition with a bigger stick with which to beat him constantly. And the quote is actually really amazing. Um, let me pull it up here. Uh, so the quote is, Freedom of information. This is my best Blair accent. No, oh, don't, don't even do it. Three, <laughs> three harmless words. I look at those words. I look at those words that I write them, and I feel like shaking my head till it drops off my shoulders. You idiot. You naive, foolish, irresponsible nincompoop. There is really no description of stupidity, no matter how vivid, that is adequate. I quake at the imbecility of it all. That's actually also my reaction when I see the words Tony Blair written down. So this is a... <laughs> Big proponent odd, of labor, labor governments, aren't odd, you? Odd coincidence. So, like, the background here is that Tony Blair, <clears throat> uh, when he was campaigning, campaigned on greater transparency, mm -hmm. got in, rapidly did it, and then rapidly regretted it. Yeah. Because, fundamentally, who uses Access Information Act? It's your political opponents, and it's journalists using yep. it yeah. to embarrass the government yeah. for, you know, I mean, the like, public I, interest. Yeah, you're right. For, okay, for, okay. for, for the, the public, public interest. interest. Yes, yeah. I'm not implying I mean, some sort of, like, terrible motive, but it's... That's, like, kind, of the, that's kind of the problem, The stories it? are it's, all negative stories about things going wrong in government. Well, if the, government was doing better, maybe it wouldn't all be negative stories. There's always, <laughs> always going to be negative stories. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's just like... Yeah, like, Blair is correct in the sense that, like... Having the Access Information Act or Freedom of Information, or I think they call it Freedom of Information in, in the UK, um, is like bad for the short-term political incentives of a political party in power because obviously, like having people able to access information when you have a monopoly on it is or a virtual monopoly is like yeah, it's obviously not good from like a game theory perspective. Oh, yeah. But on from the perspective of like we live in a democratic society where like it is good for people to have a certain access to information to how the government thinks and what it's basing its decisions on. I mean, like, Blair is correct in the sense that, like, it is inconvenient, but he is wrong in the sense that, but like, it, that it, is the price you kind of pay for, like, but a reasonable about, democratic system. It's about striking that balance, though. Because yeah, for sure. With, but too, like, with too much information out there, you have, like, otherwise well-intending governments just being, like, pummeled crippled, by, yeah. cri crippled by, like, legitimately well-founded stories but just too much information of how much the sausage is made yeah. will eventually mean like constant change of government constant scandals constantly them being contradicted every time you again go against the advice of your public servant yeah which is a hundred percent reasonable well, to do it, because governments have political agendas yeah and donald savoy's made this point too reasons. right yeah donald savoy's made this point in in his books that like the culture of decision making in the public service because of things like access to information is very different than what you see in the public in the private sector sorry uh, in the public sector, you're basically managing to avoid embarrassment from mm -hmm. the minister. In the private sector, you are much freer to do kind of, you know, whatever you want or, you know, within constraints of how the firm operates because, like, you just don't really answer to the broader public. You answer to shareholders, but shareholders can't, like, call up your boss and say, hey, we want all the files on, you know, whatever. Can you give them to us in 30 days? Like, yeah. they, they just don't do that. So it's created a, a just like a, 
culture of how decisions get made and how you know things kind of move through um, different like hierarchies through the public service that is just basically made it very risk averse and very averse to having unfortunate information leak out rather than like making decisions quickly that might go wrong yeah because like being wrong and getting things wrong is like the worst thing you can do yeah that's very much sort of the subtext here is that uh, i think it's important to highlight that the access to information act literally changes how information in government works what information goes on paper and what advice and recommendations are given because it's all the level of uh honesty and transparency from public servants to political is directly influenced by the potential repercussions yeah, of that Yeah, like public servants have to feel that they can do their jobs like freely and frankly, as we said earlier, I think. And like, yeah, that, that there is there is a balance to strike. In terms of the, the recent liberal um, uh, proposed changes, how do you guys feel like those are like, are the, is that going to happen? Like, I think Dan and I are, are skeptical. That can we're can you pull it. up the list too? But I, I, I do want to say like, um, when it comes to whether or not they're going to happen. So I was, I was talking to Nick uh, Taylor Vassy. He's the uh, head of the Canadian Association of Journalists. And I was interviewing him for a story. Uh, this would be a few months ago now. And he was saying how happy they were when the Liberals got in. They thought there was going to be a more transparent, accountable government, good relationship. He fell for it. <laughs> I, hear, I hear a lot of that from a lot of different kinds of yeah. groups. But a good, good relationship with journalists. Yeah. Uh, we, we were looking and very excitedly looking for these reforms. Uh, so they kept pushing it off. They kept pushing it off, uh, kind of watering it down. And I, I think it's uh, uh, Mr. Bryson kept watering it down yeah. in some of his remarks. Yeah, and, uh, and it, something was supposed to happen around now. That's what that's what Nick was telling me, uh, and now it looks like they've just backed off on it altogether. There's no time frame anymore. They're not yeah. even saying like it's a few months down the road. I just don't think there is yeah. a time frame anymore. Even though they are still saying like, oh, you know, we're committed to whatever, which is just government. Of course, government you're, you're, speak for like we like good things, you, and maybe someday we'll do them. You keep the talking <laughs> points until the day you like quietly bury until them. the day you literally bury it. Yeah. Like, oh, now we've done 180. But like, this is the type of thing that the liberals like speculating here. That the liberals would likely just keep talking the good talk on, mm-hmm. and then it comes up to the next election, and it's a relatively niche issue. Uh, it's mostly journalists who care about this more than anyone. And I think we should be doing a better job advocating for it. Journalists get together in the United States and advocate for these kind of reforms, and we don't do it in Canada. Uh, there's some weird mentality of like, you know, we're reporters, we don't, we shouldn't have a stake in it. But like, this is what our industry is about. Like, it is kind of about holding power to account and, yeah, and you need to having access to information. Yeah. So it's weird that we don't uh, we don't advocate for it more. That's yeah. fair. Yeah, the journalism lobby not a, yeah. not a strong. The, the other thing we just we just slipped uh, four points in the uh, the press freedom index put out by reporters. Oh yeah, reporters. right. Yeah, that was a. This is one reason for it. Another reason was uh, is the you know Canada's various security apparatus, police, RCMP, whatever, uh, trying to get at journalist sources and uh, and spying on journalists, um, which has prompted them to put out a number of alerts, and that's why we've slipped again. All the other all of our kind of developed neighbors are uh, making positive strides and since we're not doing anything and we're kind of slipping a little bit back in the courts right now we're, we're dropping ranks fair enough i i think it's worth mentioning the uh the speculative press shield law uh oh yeah bill s231 yeah, yeah. so, so it's a, a senate bill which is rare senate private members bill yeah um that's sort of in, a, in its infancy right now and i speculate We'll, we'll see how it goes. It depends on the legislative cycle, yeah. um, whether or not it goes anywhere. Generally, bills are pretty lackluster in terms of their success yeah. rates. So. And actually, we should we should mention like the legislative side as well for the, the access information reforms is that like in an overarching way, the liberals have not managed the legislative calendar that well. And like we're now a, t- a two-week break that wraps up on Monday, and then the session wraps up in a month and a half or so. 
so they don't have all that much time. So if you actually look over um, their legislative success so far, there's only been a handful of actual bills that have gone through. I was, I was going through it uh, earlier this morning, and like it is entirely surprising how few pieces of substantive legislation they've got through. The bulk of bills so far that have achieved royal assent are and that's like, outside of like budget bills. Are budget bills yeah. and housekeeping bills? There's been a couple. the The most obvious one is the uh, assisted dying assisted dying legislation. Uh, but the question becomes: This summer is do they prorogue and put all these bills sort of into the garbage can to be yeah. reintroduced yeah. later? And we can we can talk about the mechanics of like prorogation and all that another time because uh, that actually does sound like a good topic. But but where this becomes relevant, yeah. of course, is any bills that are being introduced now yep. likely won't if if they prorogue this summer likely will not make it to the light of day. Um, They'd so have to be reintroduced. Reintroduced yeah. by another member or same member again at some point. So yeah. Yeah. it's. It's up in the air, so I wouldn't cross my fingers that that would be, because it's a private member's bill at the end of the day, that you really want government legislation to deal with these things. You have to make it a government priority. Maybe, yeah. maybe we should mention what Bill S-231 is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> so this is a Senate bill. I'm going to mispronounce his name, but it was uh, Senator Claude uh, Carignan. Am I getting that? Claude Carignan. Thank you. Um, so I actually interviewed him uh, on his bill. And it's one of those funny stories, you know, when you're a journalist and I'm, I'm working from home in my pajamas um, and I'm kind of expecting his but call. Fighting a good fight. Yeah, but, but I've used the washroom. So, you know, I go and use the washroom and uh, I'm halfway through and uh, this, a senator calls you. So you have to like pick up the phone and somehow put him on mute and like flush the toilet, wash your hands. Because when, when the senator calls you, you're not going to like, Absolutely. you know, tell him, give me five minutes. <laughs> well, put you on hold for a minute, yeah. senator. Yeah, so that's kind of the negative thing of working from home as a freelancer, right? You never know when a story's going to happen. So, yeah, about the bill, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're good at it, guys. We're so good at it. <laughs> about the bill, right. So, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's called Canada's first, like, press shield legislation. Yeah. And uh, the U.S. has had, like, a oh, press shield law for A decades, lot of countries yeah. have press shield laws. It, it's, it's surprising we don't. Although, we do have Section 2B of the Charter Rights and Freedoms, which guarantees us freedom of the press, which should be enough. But uh, recent cases have shown us that it is it is not, and the courts mm -hmm. need more direction from the legislation side of things. Right, so what does the bill actually do? <laughs> um, so it would make it more difficult uh, for judges to give warrants to spy on journalists, uh, like it was in the case of Quebec, where it was a justice of the peace that actually signed a number of warrants against journalists. Now it would have to be a superior court justice. So there's already a, a big jump there because justice yeah. of the peace don't even have to have a legal degree. Mm -hmm. Superior court justice are probably better at weighing the constitutional aspect of whether or not to grant that. Um, they would also the judge would also have the option of um, hearing from an expert on the media uh, to kind of advocate for the journalist or the media outlet. Is that is that Jesse Brown? <laughs> <laughs> Jesse probably not. <laughs> uh, to kind of give arguments because they're not going to go to the journalists and be like, argue about why we shouldn't surveil you, right? Right. But there might be a person that uh, could argue on their behalf. And the other thing is it would protect uh, journalists' confidential sources. Um, and this was the big, uh, the big thing in here. So uh, judges would only be able to give warrants to like police, RCMP, whatever, if uh, they could not get the information that that journalist has any other way. Uh, and only if the public interest of getting that information outweighs the public interest of keeping sources confidential. Because if sources do cannot expect confidentiality when they go to journalists, they will stop coming forward. It, it's yeah. a chilling effect. It would stop people from being whistleblowers. 
Um, and uh, several of my colleagues in the field have said that that started happening actually when the Vice case happened. A lot of sources got started to get really squirrely. Yeah, do you want to just quickly do like the Vice case? Yeah, the Vice case, just for people who aren't aware of it. Sure. So the Vice case. Uh, uh, so Ben McCoo is a Vice reporter. He was doing a story on this Calgary. Mohammed Sheridan. Yes, and he he was a Calgary Canadian born. He went from Calgary to go fight for ISIS. Um, so Vice uh, interviewed him. Because uh, it's a story in the public interest, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, why would a Canadian go and, and, and fight for these dash bags? So... Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a good pun. Good Thank pun. you. Um, so they communicated over kick. Uh, the RCMP uh, went to a judge and got a production order for the, those chat logs. Uh, and then uh, Vice and Ben refused to give them those chat logs. As they should, yeah. Yeah, so they, they fought this all the way up now. Uh, they keep getting, they keep like basically losing their court fights, and it might go to the Supreme Court now. The Supreme Court decides to hear an issue if it covers a vague area of law and if it's in the public interest, and I would argue that this does. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's that's Ben. Okay. No, yeah, I, I would not be surprised to see that one go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. We should do Supreme Court episodes sometime too. Yeah, with all, our all with, with our extensive legal. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, like, well, hashtag we'll, we'll not a lawyer, good. but we'll get someone good. We'll get someone. I'm very much of the opinion that like law is sort of like automotives, where you can sort of like teach yourself on YouTube a little bit, and yeah. like some people will just be like, oh no, it's law. Like we, we can never like possibly read like. It's just it's no. Just have words. you read legal documents? Like they, they generally make sense. Yeah, like, it's just, like, yeah. <laughs> it's just words. The logic flows usually pretty easy. Anyway, yeah, whatever. Well, you can, you're you not can, that smart. You can read <laughs> Supreme Court rulings and have a pretty good grasp of yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like it's fine. So uh, we we kept going, but did you want to go over what the liberals were proposing? Um, yeah, we can we can touch on some of their proposals. So the one the one we sort of talked around has been the minister's office as yep. well as right. uh, parliament is the other one. That, yeah, parliament. That's that's uh, odd. I don't really see the like rationale of like why that like what committee public, what you, but committee reasons. What would you what would you atip from that actually? Yeah. I, I don't. I, I, committee transcripts. I'm are less familiar than you guys are with it. Unless they go in camera. Well, like, no, no. It'd be the prep work for committees. Oh, so, okay. Like, but still, I don't know. That stuff typically gets Le- like, between legislative aides and MPs, like their yeah. emails or interactions that, with the clerk. But like the thing with uh, between legislative aides and emails, I think you could very easily get into like privacy situations because they're discussing constituency business. Well, not not those ones, but like other no, like, sure, about but voting that, and like like it just seems like it would either be inane or private. Like and also the thing with like yeah the between like uh, the Library of Parliament analysts who work on the committees like that stuff. The legwork ends up just being reflected in the final reports that they put out. On I, I guess the issues. other half would also be then the Library of Parliament. Yeah. And the research that the Library of Parliament does for MPs, that I think might be a big one. Because as an MP, you can request different research from the Library of Parliament. Yeah. And some of the uh, officers of Parliament. And so it might be sort of in, in the weeds there. Yeah. But that, on the other hand, you though... you find some of the more interesting information. That's another case where you, you want those officers not necessarily always thinking about like the political optics of the research they're doing on like you know, salmon fishing or whatever oh, oh damn it i've fallen into your habit of making everything <laughs> about fishing but anyway um, but if they're doing factual research if this is yeah. facts like then uh, i think that facts should be able to be disclosed i mean i the yes facts no. that go into the yeah, yeah. the recommendations but usually they're not working off like you know hidden data sets they're working off like, open, open data, like Hansen stuff so it's yeah. not like the data is like privileged and, and hidden from from public view not always but i mean that data itself you would have to atip it and would you rather like atip 
just speaking like from a journalist perspective, I can't ATIP all the data and do all the data myself and actually crank stories out and yeah. manage to feed myself. Like it's not. Yeah, oh yeah, it's ton of work. So if they're going to create like an executive level summary that they provide to the minister, I just want that executive level summary. Yeah. Right. I'd love to. I'd love to have the time to go deeper into the data and stuff, and maybe that does spark some questions to then go and ask people. Yeah. But the executive level summary is a you know the best place to start. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you could sort of, I can sort of see the argument for having that. And, you know, it's interesting to know what MPs ask. But on the other hand, like, we do see that through, like, order paper questions. And it's really just, like, the intent of the, the system for, like, letting um, MPs, like, use the Library of Parliament as a resource for, for research is that, like, they are, A, good at it, B, have the time, yep. and but C, I... like, are apolitical. So you're asking them typically on, like, questions of fact, that yep. kind of thing. And if you want, like, a political question, you ask, you know, well, the government... What, what, what if I ATIP something and a minister is, you know, considering a policy direction, and all the facts the public service gives, the, the gives them are there, but the there's facts missing. Like, what if somebody in the public who's an expert on something is looking at the advice that's, minister that's getting and saying issue, they're not telling them about this? This is a different issue, because ministers have the civil service, which is atypical. If it's just, like, a member, like the MP for, you know, like... No, it's still. Oh well, yeah. I'm yeah, talking they don't have a, yeah, but. they don't have access to the, to so, the civil service. To to address your example, though, the example of our ministers making decisions using what if they full, were full information? Yeah. Two two things to that one that's the responsibility of the civil service, and it's also the responsibility of the political staff. The role of political staff is to play the challenge function, yeah. and to press the civil service on their assumptions. Like a professor would press you when you're doing your thesis dissertation yeah. or so something along these lines. So there's there's already the challenge mechanism in yeah. place. What what you'd see is there needs to be the capacity for politicians to go against the civil service. Yes. And so with without the capacity to do that, and that's diminished through varying degrees of accessibility. Um, without the capacity to do that, what you have is you have a technocracy. You have. Yeah. The bureaucrats running the show because ministers don't feel politically entitled to ever contradict the civil service. Yeah, and so your civil service becomes your government, and that's a bad thing for many. Deep state, woo! Many, <laughs> for many reasons. Yeah, not so good. Uh, Evan, do you have anything uh, on on press freedom? You wanna you wanna get off your chest or on press freedom uh, or on, on anything really? Uh, just as as our time. Uh... I know you, you've got to head back to Toronto soon. So, I, well, I would like to talk. Then I would like to give a little time to uh, to Justin Brake. He's uh, he's a, a fellow who Newfoundland. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so there's a big infrastructure project. Uh, it's called the Muskrat Falls Hydroelectric Dam, uh, and there are concerns that by doing it, it would uh, uh, create unsafe levels of methyl mercury and fish that a bunch of uh, indigenous people eat, uh, and also like issues with breast milk and it's just environmental bad stuff yeah. so uh he was covering that story and uh, a group of demonstrators you know snapped a lock clink and, and went through to do a sit-in he followed them a lot uh, other journalists did not he followed them and uh and was live streaming it essentially mm -hmm. uh, and then i mean i won't go into the, the deep legal stuff but essentially he was charged with a form of trespass um for doing his job as a journalist and this has provoked uh, uh i've written about this a couple times for candleland and uh, in the kind of in the comment section, a lot of people are saying, well, he shouldn't have special protections because that would create a special class for journalists. Uh, but on the other hand, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a lot of this is giving voice to indigenous folks who haven't had a voice before. Because we just if, if he hadn't gone there, we would have had the RCMP press release on what yeah. happened and we would just be speaking for like the state and we'd have no real input from them. But with a journalist following there, uh, it also like prevents instances of of. Uh, 
state or police brutality, which I know isn't the role of a journalist, but it is a, a nice it's, byproduct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, always a plus when less people get beaten savagely. By cops. Exactly, but I mean, I think it's a big issue if, uh, especially in cases like these, if journalists can't do their job because they have to be, they have to be afraid that they're going to be yeah, charged for sure. So that sort of feeds back into the press uh, yep. law. Uh, no, it, that would not help. No, break a different. No, yeah. okay, that's really for sources. Yeah, sources. and and protecting surveillance of, of of journalists, but yeah, it would not. Okay, so it does them. it doesn't cover um, allowing. So I guess the way this is sort of conventionally allowed is just through like unwritten under unspoken understanding between police yep. and journalists. Like they so probably no... would never have charged CBC if they had done it, but he's like a one man independent shop. Gotcha. Fair enough. Um, yeah, CBC has better lawyers, etc. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger budget. Anyway, Evan. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, do give us a shout if you're ever back in town and want to talk uh, talk journalism, talk press freedom, etc. Yeah, uh, this was your first, information. first time to Ottawa, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And you guys recommend I go to the War Museum and I saw a, a bunch of really, really big guns. Yeah, there, there are lots and they are very big. Yeah. yeah. Also, yeah, folks, if you've never been to the War Museum, it has lots of guns. Now sponsored by Heritage <laughs> Canada. What are you supposed to say? Fresh books. It's, it's great for your accounting. Yeah. If we say it enough, you folks, guys will get sponsored, you hate go, right? Folks, you hate going to the post office. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You say it enough times, I'm sure they'll catch on. Uh, Evan, thanks so much, man. Thank you, guys. Once again, a big thank you to uh, Evan Belgord for that. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, first time in Ottawa for him, so... I mean, you gotta you gotta come to the capital. Come on, beautiful city, beautiful city. Especially uh, you, have, you have six months to see it before it's all covered in scaffolding for ten years. That's so. true. Yeah, and also it hailed today, which I mean, that's awesome. I mean, at the end of April, that's that's what the the content we all we all crave. So the other like, I honestly the only really big piece of news in Canadian political media this week was, uh, oh. I mean, like the, by far the biggest. All right, let's put sure. It okay. Anyway, uh, was. Uh, our our good friend Kevin O'Leary dropping out of the conservative leadership race and endorsing Maxime Bernier. Yeah, I think uh, I think we're a little late in reporting this story. Yeah, sorry. We were uh. <laughs> we were considering doing like an emergency episode day of and call it Kevin O'Reilly, uh, but we didn't because we were on a patio having beers instead. This, sorry. This, yeah, <laughs> we too late. deemed that more important. It was a beautiful day. All right. Anyway. Um, yeah, Tian, like, you're, you're the conservative here. What are, what are your thoughts? Uh, so I think just, like, there were a lot of rumors going around, uh, that something big was going to happen that day, and, like, myself, like many others, reached out to people on different campaigns, be like, hey, is your candidate dropping out of the race and endorsing anyone? And people were like, no, what, what are you, what are you talking about? I think a lot of people were suspecting it was going to be sort of a, a coalition of the willing, um, that it'd be like a rate, O'Toole, Sheer, like, some sort of like combination of them um but that wasn't the case at all Indeed. it was in fact uh, kevin o'leary dropping yeah, out. yeah and the vice reporting on this was really funny because they mentioned he had like made the decision at, like the last night and had yeah. like called bernier like two thirty in the morning like i imagine like pacing his like house that he's like sculpted into like an elaborate dragon's den somewhere who is in the staffer on call at two in the morning is, right like yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, I imagine they, they might... Anyway, that was very odd. Like, it seems like a decision he made very hastily, kind of for no, like, obvious, apparent, like, that day kind of reason. It was sort of like... His stated reason was that he thought he couldn't win in a general election. My sense is actually that he thought he was going to lose the leadership and kind of like a... 
sort of by slowly kind of like not getting enough second preferences and such. Or just he eventually decided he didn't want the leadership. Like, I mean, yeah, that or the... He just, got a taste of campaigning and was like, oh shit, I don't yeah. want to do this for another two years. In the words of another guy uh, who... The job was a lot the harder The job was a bit harder than he expected be. it, yeah. It, entirely possible, I get the sense that he... I mean, he clearly wasn't entirely serious about the whole thing. No. Because he was like living he... in Boston and like... Forgot to forgot about his wife's anniversary, so had to skip on a debate, and then like pretended that he had a flight canceled to go to Winnipeg, but it wasn't canceled. We cannot pretend that this campaign was well run. No, and that it was like a wholehearted effort. It was it was pretty awful. Yeah, he was phoning it in. I mean, like good riddance, frankly. I think it was like he only served to make it into more of a freak show than it already was. The uh, the interesting thing now is. Um, the O'Leary camp sort of merging with the Bernier camp and how much how much how much is that actually gonna happen? Yeah. So okay, a little bit about Max and Bernier though. Uh, in the sense that like Max and Bernier is has made the very very smart strategic decision for his campaign to not make the Max and Bernier campaign about Max and Bernier. He's tried to make it about like libertarian ideas and policies which is a good idea because Maxim Bernier is not that smart uh like I like, you know for like he's not the smartest guy in the race he's I, I, not the most like I think you're right gifted the, administrator in the race I think like, you're right in the assessment that their pitch is about the policy and not the person yeah like I think this is one of only a few campaigns I think a lot of the other campaigns are in fact nearly all of them are taking the opposite approach. Yeah. And saying, um, like, to use Shear's campaign as an example, like, I am the one who can lead us to victory. Um, I am, you know, a kind of face conservatism, compassionate conservatism. And the policies <laughs> oh, are sort of... The policies <laughs> are that sort of before? secondary to the... Uh, to his person. Yeah. Selling, selling yeah, him as leadership, a person. Leaderships tend to be about that. Where right, Max, like, Maxim Bernier doesn't have, like, the family life, the family side. Yeah. He, he's not talking about, like, here are my achievements throughout. He's just saying, like, freedom. Mad Max. Freedom! Yeah, exactly. No, and yeah, I, I do think that this has been smart because he's recognized that he is his campaign's biggest liability in a way. And, like, taken steps to mitigate that by not making it about him, which I think is, like, strategically clever. But I think that's, like, as clever as we're going to get. I just I just don't think he's that well-equipped to actually lead the Conservative Party. Like, he doesn't strike me as a great bridge builder in any meaningful way. Like, I, I don't know. I don't really see it working out, but good luck to the Conservative Party, I guess, as he seems likely to win at this point. That- uh, he was pretty likely to win to begin with. So, if nothing else, it'll be... So if, if he does win, it'll be an interesting experiment for the Conservative Party in libertarianism. Yes. And, like, it'll be interesting to see sort of how that performs federally. And, like, it's, it's a, it's a, it'll be a little bit of a risk, a I little think bit of an experiment. A, I think as Eisenhower put it about people who, like, wanted to, like, cut Social Security and stuff in the U.S., it's like, they are stupid and they are few in number. Um, I anticipate that they might run into similar problems. Uh, I mean, we'll see. But, and, like, worst case scenario, and one of the reasons why I'm not uh, sort of too... You're too... not on the freedom train to... No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying not too, too, too concerned about this either way is because, you know, Justin Trudeau is still performing reasonably well. Yeah. And so the odds of him being overtaken in the next election is sort of 
I'm, I'm not super optimistic. Not about. holding your breath. Yeah. Yeah, for for two years for sort of things to change dramatically. Um, so I mean, it, it'll it'll be a trial run. Yeah. And then also, there's always the possibility for another reset down yeah. the line. Also, acting supply management, which like I don't know if we've ever like really talked about supply management at length on the show. Pro- probably at various points, honestly, it's impossible to avoid. It's really like the bugbear of like plugged in politicos. It's like oh, supply management, but like conservatives have a lot of rural seats. You know why? They probably want to keep those. It's because politicals love charcuterie. They're like, oh, my charcuterie board does not have the fancy European cheeses that I want. No, or they're more expensive than they should be. That's true. That's true. I mean, I love a charcuterie board myself, so I can I can definitely sympathize with that. See, However, yeah, no, it's it, anyway. Like, I don't want to get too much into <laughs> the weeds of supply management right now, but or like, into the weeds of the finer points of charcuterie. Oh, that I mean, we should actually just start another charcuterie podcast. <laughs> Uh, that would Today be we're, we'll be discussing Soprasetta, the finer points, Calabresi. Anyway, um, yeah. So that I, it will actually be really interesting. Like come back to the Kevin O'Leary thing and his endorsement of Bernier is that like how much is that actually going to move people? Because I think people going for O'Leary were not like hardened ideologues. So I enjoyed reading O'Leary's Facebook page. And, oh yeah. So there's like because the, he put out a fu- like to clarify also for people is he put out a fundraising ask at like. 10 o'clock that morning, yeah. which is, like, legitimate in the sense that, like, if you go, you go to clear campaign debts, whatever, it's fine. It just looks really sleazy, though. You still have bills to pay. Yeah. I'm, but I'm, it looks bad. I'm not sure it was worth the hit. Like, how much money do you raise especially, from one fundraising email? But. Especially because, like, his whole problem is that he was perceived to be, like, a huckster. And yes. then he, like, his last thing in the race is just to, like, another grift, basically. It's, like, hmm, not but a great look. It's, it's also just funny logistically to look at, like, he still went to the scheduled events for the day. There was uh, a reporter who it was... It seems so sudden, Who was yeah. shadowing him. Yeah. And he spoke in, I believe, Toronto to, like, a crowd of youths, and he was talking about different things, and there was, like, a little foreshadowing. Yeah. He was talking about his weak French ability. But it's just, like, meanwhile, they're setting up, like... The uh, well, the podium st- for his resignation, like, yeah. later that afternoon. But they had, like, stuff, like, media planned, like, for months. Like, yeah. they had, like, meetings and, you know, whatever. Like, it just seems like this was a very sudden decision, and I have to presume it came top of the org chart. It was like, made at 2.30, 2.30 a.m. over a <laughs> bottle of uh, O'Leary-branded scotch or whatever, whatever he sells. Isn't it wine? It's the thing where he, like, cuts yeah, the wine with the sword or whatever. The saber. It's champagne with a saber. Oh, my God. You've never... Sh- You've never lived until you've sh- savored a champagne bottle. Indeed. Or, I mean, or broken a champagne bottle on, on, your, on your new yacht. Yeah, that's true. Or a warship, even better. Anyway, I think that, that'll probably do it for us today. That was like a real, yeah, real drop out of the blue for us. We were very surprised by, well, I was anyway, because I'm not plugged into the conservative networks that Tian's plugged into. But uh, yeah, I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens in the race. We'll continue covering it. We, we are strongly considering going to the uh, new conservative dinner. On uh, May eighth in Ottawa. So, yeah, it's uh, a week. It's a week from now. So, yeah, so we're, hopefully we're, we'll report on that in two weeks. Yeah, so see you there, and uh, we'll have the finest brandy and cigars with you. Uh, it'll be good. That'll be a crowd of people who appreciate their charcuterie. Exactly. Yeah, old PC uh, bagman will be excellent. Anyway, that'll do it for the boys in short pants this week. Uh, thanks uh, to Evan for listening, and to Evan Balgor for coming by. It was a, it was a real pleasure. Uh, Etienne, you got anything? Um. Still need to write and review. Oh yeah, I, I know you're out there. I know you haven't done it yet. Yeah, you got you got to up that conversion rate. Come we on. we get paid in iTunes stars. Yeah, so exactly. get on it. You got to put that on the table for the intern. It's either iTunes stars or Trident layers. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not getting I'm not getting <laughs> Trident layers, so I need more iTunes stars. Have a good week, everyone.